Good morning, Crossroads. I thought I would uh, start this morning uh, with just a brief thank you. Um, I think maybe many people in this room can empathize and associate with uh, experiences of deep pain and grief, uh, suffering in many different um, ways. When Jan and I were in the hospital for January and February, um, and coming back to Grand Rapids, and we were in Ann Arbor, coming back to Grand Rapids and Crossroads, I felt this overwhelming sense of wanting to look every person in the eye and say thank you. Um, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of a community, even as big as Crossroads is, I don't know all of you personally, but we, uh, without a doubt, can speak to the gift of your prayers, that we were held close to uh, the Father uh, when we felt like we walked on the edge of, of despair. Um, we felt like we were held close to uh, the Father through your prayers. And so from Jan and I, we just wanted to say thank you for the love and the support. Um, it's been a gift. Thank you so much for uh, just allowing me to say that in preparation for our gospel text this morning. Um, it's just been, it's been overwhelming and humbling, so thank you. Uh, like Rod said, uh, it's been a joy for me. I have now transitioned, actually. I used to be a resident here at Crossroads, and it is a profound gift to be able to step into uh, the college pastor role. Um, and so I'm very excited about that. Jana and I um, had anticipated the possibility of having to move on from Crossroads, a community that we've called home for 13 years. Um, and we looked and prayed and applied and, and, and asked God where he might lead us. Um, and we can certainly say with deep, full hearts of gratitude that we um, are so excited to remain uh, with you all. So it's awesome. <clears throat> It's just, it's incredible. Um, and so please know that we count it a privilege uh, to be a part of the staff to serve you in the ways that God has called us to. Also another thing, uh, Rod didn't mention this, but as we step into the rhythms of the summer, next week um, I have my dear friend Neil Martin from England coming here to teach. Yes. All right, amen. That's, every time I think about Neil and him teaching, that's my response. Uh, but if you've ever heard Neil teach, you know that you've got to pay attention the first 30 seconds or otherwise, you probably should just duck out. Um, hopefully it won't be uh, that intense this morning. Um, I, uh, I'm just excited for the text that God has us in as we kind of wrap up this first uh, chapter or this first, um, I would say, act of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Uh, and we like to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read this morning's text. We come to the Word of God without pretension or performance this morning, hungry for the living Word of God, that it might feed us, that it might give us the very life and sustenance that we need. And so with that, read with me. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around, villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Interesting question that Jesus might ask. Uh, they reply, well, some say John the Baptist. Others, they say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. 
Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Perplexing. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter, who had just proclaimed him to be the Messiah, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of God. Amen. You can grab a seat. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you this morning. We plead with you. Help us. We know you have sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper and guide. And this morning, as we read these words that were written some 2,000 years ago, Father, open our eyes, soften our hearts, teach us what you would want us to, to learn, cultivate in us good soil. Father, that we could walk away this morning being refreshed, convicted, admonished. Whatever you have in mind for us, Father, wherever you meet us, please, please help us. We're so thankful to be in your presence. We're so thankful to be with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're thankful for this beautiful weekend, for a time to to hopefully rest, Father. So many things in this world... um, So much chaos, but in this moment for the next half hour, Lord, help us to be fully present, fully here, fully immersed in your living word, and may it bring life as it promises to do. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to start with a question, and I would ask you to not, it's funny, I see a lot of chairs over here open, and I guess some people maybe got like the word that the ginger was teaching, and so they decided to duck out of the (laughs) way. This is great, though. I'm so grateful that you're here this morning. Um, the question I want to pose to you is about lordship, supreme authority, the one who makes the calls. And in the context of a Bible church, especially in West Michigan, maybe our temptation based upon our heritage, um, our childhood, where we've grown up, we might want to rush to answer the question. Who is Lord of my life? It might feel like an easy answer. I know who the Lord of my life is. But I want you to ponder that question for a moment. Let it simmer in your spirit and ask yourself, Lordship, who has supreme authority over what I say, what I do, what I think, where I go, how I live my life? And I promise we will return to this question by the end of our time this morning. Lordship. Who has supreme power and rule in your life? 
All right, so that's one thing. I promise we'll return to it. The next thing is, as we read the text this morning, and as I had a chance to study and spend time in chapter 8 of Mark, I don't know if you're like me, but some questions quickly jumped off the page. And uh, I don't know if, if the jury is still out on the question of if you can ask a stupid question or not. I'll just tell you, I feel like you can't because some of these questions... Uh, I feel like maybe are stupid questions that I asked, but I didn't know the answer to them. So maybe you're like me, and maybe as you read this, you wondered, Caesarea Philippi, I don't know much about that city. I'm guessing there's a purpose for it. I'm guessing that there is a reason why we're here, but I don't know much about it. <clears throat> also, Jesus, why does he continue this call for secrecy? Why does he continue to ask his disciples, do not speak of who I am? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. This title, Son of Man, now, knowing the context of Son of Man, I'm not quite sure what this means. I would think maybe the title Son of God, right, would seem more fitting. What does this mean that Jesus calls himself Son of Man? And why is Jesus so harsh with Peter? Does he truly call Peter Satan to his face? And Lord willing, as we press into God's word, the answers to these questions will begin to come into view. So like I said, we find ourselves at the culmination of the first act of Mark's gospel. 16 chapters at the end here of chapter 8. It's the halfway mark of the gospel, the turning of the tide, and Jesus leads his beloved disciples to Caesarea Philippi to ask them a question. Now it's always helpful to ask uh, context, where are we, right? That question of Caesarea Philippi. And I'm not going to do uh, this question the most service that it could use because um, I'll leave that maybe for another sermon, but this is a little blurb for the trips that we get to take to Israel often that Libby and Rod lead. Um, you get to walk actually in the ruins of Caesarea Philippi, and it's incredible to actually see this city, to understand uh, the pagan heritage of this site. This is actually on the northern reaches of the region of Jesus' ministry, along with Jesus' trip to Tyre and Sidon that we read about in chapter 7. This is nearly the furthest Jesus' ministry takes him away from Jerusalem. We are at the, at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is actually the traditional placement of scholars for the location of the Transfiguration, which we'll read about in chapter 9 when we return to the Gospel of Mark. But this is a city and a region with a true reputation. So Caesarea Philippi was actually a city that Herod the Great received from Caesar Augustus in 20 BC, and he would later give it to his son, Philip. Now Philip, in order to distinguish this city from his father, Herod the Great, city of Caesarea on the coast, he decided to, in very Herod form, call it after himself, Caesarea Philippi. But it also had many other names, one of which, in the first century, was Peneus, named for the Greco-Roman fertility god Pan. Now, Pan was often de depicted as half man, half goat, and he was this god that, that the Greco-Roman time, they, they sought to, to sacrifice and to offer their, um, their pagan rituals to bring Pan from the underworld. You see, Caesarea Philippi was a city at the base of Mount Hermon, a sheer cliff with a grotto. There was this spring of water that bubbled up from underneath the mountain. All the snow and the rain that would fall on Mount Hermon would trickle down through the rocks and would gush out of this specific spot. And the ancients believed that this grotto, this source of water, which actually is one of the, the headwaters of the Jordan River, was 
the entrance to Sheol, so the underworld. And during the winter, Pan and other gods would, would be in the underworld, and through these ritual sacrifices, through this temple prostitution, this pagan worship, they would elicit and, and ask Pan to come back to the world and to bring about fertility for crops, uh, for the, the shepherds of the land. And so it's this backdrop that Jesus chooses to ask this question, right? He chooses here to reveal himself in the midst, very much in the midst of the world. This is the red light district, far, far from the comforts of home for his followers. Because you see, Jesus and his reputation, it had spread. Talk of his miracles, murmurings of his teachings, of his wisdom, of even his origin, there was a cloud of speculation, of hope, intrigue, and Jesus begins with this question to press into the hearts of his beloved disciples. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, we learned back in chapter six, if you remember, that even Herod himself had proclaimed that Jesus may have been John the Baptist, coming back from the dead. Still others believed that Jesus to be Elijah or one of the prophets. And these are all noble, esteemed, certainly miraculous possibilities. And yet, still lacking. This is the question that actually the disciples have labored at for some time. Back in chapter 4 of Mark, amidst the storm, the waves and the wind on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples ask Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So now Jesus has asked the general question, who do people say I am? And I feel like it's this moment, I don't know, I'm sure we have some teachers here, and we've all been in classrooms, where a teacher says, all right, class, what's the answer? And so we're all kind of just waiting for our neighbor who did more homework to answer. Uh, But then the teacher's eyes meet yours. You know that feeling. (laughs) Nathan. What's the answer? And it's this feeling that we get when Jesus presses into his disciples. Yes, yes, this is what others say. For you, my disciples, have been out in the crowds. You've heard the murmurings, the conclusions that others have drawn. But here Jesus speaks the question that makes all the difference. Who do you say that I am? Let's just take a moment and put ourselves right there in that space And ponder that question. Can you picture it? Jesus of Nazareth, eyes clear, focused on you, and from his mouth, you hear these words. Who do you say I am? There's so much wrapped up in this question. My disciples, have you been paying attention? What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? And verse 29, what about you? He said, who do you say that I am? Peter, I love Peter. Of course it would be Peter. He speaks up. No surprise, right? First out of the boat, the one to proclaim, I will never forsake you, Jesus. The fervor of this man. Jesus, I know who you are. I know who you are. You are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Now, it's interesting. This same story is articulated in Matthew and Luke, as well as Mark. But Mark offers us a slight abbreviation to this moment. This same story in Matthew 16 gives us a little bit more context. The same moment of Peter's declaration of Jesus, this is what the text says. 
Blessed are you, Jesus says, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So on all accounts, Peter has it right. Right? He's got the right answer. But Mark, what he does, he offers us something that's so important. Look with me in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So right after this declaration that we champion, Peter, yes, you got it, right answer, I love it. What does Jesus say? He continues to say, do not tell others about me. He warns them to keep it a secret. Now again, if you're like me, this is a little troubling. It's a little confusing. We've touched on this notion briefly in our time in Mark, um, which is often referred to as the messianic secret. Why? Why Jesus, in light of Peter's response, would continue to call his disciples to secrecy? Now, scholars have some conclusions that they make about this idea. The term Messiah, you see, in the first century, we may know this, it came to harbor a great many expectations from the Jews. There was this expectation of spiritual longing for renewal, revival, awakening, and that was partnered with a new kingdom, the very real and heated expectation that Messiah, he would come to be a liberator for the oppressed, and that through power or influence or political capital, even violence, this kingdom would be established And then the nation of Israel would once again take its rightful place as the people of God, out from under any oppression. So most scholars conclude that Jesus, knowing full well of the murky and combustible expectations associated with Messiah, he recognized that this would undermine his ministry if this misconstrued expectation of Messiah were attached to him, especially, especially in his disciples. Yes, Peter, I am the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah? Do you truly know what the Messiah has come to do? See, this proclamation from Peter, it actually is the first time that a person has uttered this revelation in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we've heard this truth in other places. Even in the first verse of the first chapter of Mark, our narrator, Mark, says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. We've heard it from God the Father, right? A voice came from heaven in chapter 1, verse 11. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And we've heard it from who else? From demons, right? Whenever the impure spirits saw him, chapter 3, verse 11, they fell down and cried out, you are the Son of God. But this is the first time any of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark have articulated this revelation. Now, the other Gospels have the disciples recognizing this early on, but I think Mark wants us to feel the weight of this moment. Here, the true and full revelation of Jesus begins to be revealed. My disciples, countless hours we've spent together, the paths we have walked, the miracles you have witnessed, the faith you have shown, it all leads to this revelation. And Peter, he seems to get it. Look with me in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now directly after Peter's recognition 
Jesus steps into this teaching, and there's a key that we cannot miss, because certainly the disciples would not have missed it. And it's this question of a title, Son of Man. It is not a coincidence, but a colliding, actually, of two worlds. Now, this title, actually, Jesus had used it for himself before in Mark, right? It finally comes to bear in the reality of who the Messiah really is. This title would not have been lost on the disciples, and their hearts and minds would have been drawn to the book of Daniel. You see, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is given a dream depicting a great many things, but one of which is a figure with the title, Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 reads this, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came like one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You can almost feel the excitement of the disciples, their hearts leaping out of their chests the affirmation of all their hopes. This is the Messiah we're waiting for. The one that will set about a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Yes, truly the Messiah, our long-awaited Savior King, the Son of Man, the one whose kingdom will not pass away. They are one and the same, Messiah and Son of Man. He is standing before us. And here again, I can hear Jesus gathering his disciples. Peter, James, John, Andrew, brothers, listen, and I will say it plainly. That king, that long-awaited Messiah, the Son of Man, with all the authority and all the power and all the glory, that king and the road to his kingdom is a road of suffering. It's a road of death, but ultimately new life. Can we feel the weight of this moment The floor is just dropping out from underneath the disciples. No, 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 it cannot be that you should suffer, Jesus, that you should die, and at the hands of our own people, our own priests, our own rabbis, our own religious leaders, you are the chosen one, Jesus, our savior, our rescuer in time of need. You're the answer to David's lament in the Psalms, how long, O Lord, must we wait? You're resting with us now, right? Like you did in Egypt. And such is the weight, the conviction, the overwhelming response that Peter, listen, Peter who has just proclaimed that Jesus is God's anointed one, he has the blind nerve, the denial response to tell the Son of God, you are wrong. This cannot be the way. Man, this paints a really clear picture for us, I hope. This disconnection between Messiah and suffering was so strong that Peter gives Jesus in one breath full authority, you are Messiah. And in the next breath, he revokes it. You're wrong, Jesus. I trust you. Whatever you say is from the Lord Jesus, but not that. Not that. In this moment is the very first moment where Jesus takes the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the one who will make all things right, to free the captives from bondage, to loosen the chains of the oppressed, to come and reign. Jesus takes the vast 
and overwhelming expectations tied up in that title, and he places them beside the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 crashes into view. Tim Keller points this out. He says, never before this moment had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. Of course, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament about a mysterious servant of the Lord who suffers, but nobody before Jesus had ever associated those texts with the hope of the Messiah. The notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. How can you defeat evil by suffering and dying? If Jesus is the Messiah, sent by God, taking on the title Son of Man, surely he would know the plan. But Peter cannot wrap his mind around this. And brothers and sisters, I think we oftentimes struggle to wrap our minds around it as well. This kingdom, the kingdom of our Savior Jesus, it does not come through the gaining of power, does not come through protecting ourselves. This kingdom does not come through any violence, but the laying down of our very lives. This kingdom comes through suffering. And hear me, Jesus is so passionate about this, and we can feel the severity of this understanding. To seek a kingdom that avoids the path of suffering for Jesus is to seek a kingdom that is offered by Satan. Jesus will not be swayed from the path before him. He will not even entertain another way. Look with me in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This ought to remind us of another interaction that Jesus had with Satan. Echoes in the desert of Jesus' rebuke when Satan tempted him and offered him all the kingdoms of the world. Those comforting, tempting words of the devil. There is an easier way. You can have it all if you would just kneel before me. But this is not the path of the Messiah. And Peter, man, I love Peter. And I don't celebrate Peter's failures. But I intimately identify with them. To be overwhelmed by fear and doubt in the midst of the waves on the Sea of Galilee. To vow devotion but produce denial. To draw the sword to protect my Lord but be shown that there is a better way. Peter, so often in scripture, gives me hope for moments when I miss the mark. And remember this. Scholars believe that Peter was a primary source to Mark when he was writing this gospel. Peter wants us to see his heir on full display. We cannot miss what he missed. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, Peter, but merely human concerns. You see, human concerns center around the comforts of this world, don't they? Of being loosened from the physical chains that bind us, of protecting ourselves. But the concerns of God, they run far deeper beyond the physical to the very soul. And in this moment, Jesus is not a safe place for Peter, is he? He's even harsh. His words are direct, intentional, strong, resolute. And to hear such words from Jesus, I can only imagine the pain of Peter's heart when he meets his gaze again. 
Scholar James Edwards says this, in trying to avert Jesus from suffering, Peter, in a way he cannot know, opposes a deep mystery of God, for suffering is the only way to destroy the stronghold of Satan. And he's going to make the most of this moment, Jesus. He does not stop, but he presses in to all who would listen, gathering the crowd that has followed him all the way to Caesarea Philippi. Read with me in verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Do you hear what he says? Cross. See, at this moment, the disciples do not have the crucifixion in mind. No one has seen the cross yet. What is Jesus asking of them? Surely you can't mean a crucifixion. Was it not enough to suffer and die at the hands of our own people? Surely you can't mean the shame, the humiliation of a criminal's death. What are you asking us to do? Brothers and sisters, if you claim Jesus, this is the path before us. English theologian Charles Moore says this, Jesus is not using cross-bearing to describe the human experience of carrying some burden through life. It is much more comprehensive than that. People carrying crosses were people going to execution. Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him. And here comes the surprise. This is the way actually to total freedom. If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all that is asserting your rights, needs, and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, that all is a privilege, and that it is to be lived in the love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. Jesus says, I am Lord. And if you claim me, you must claim all of me. The very words that proceed from your mouth, the actions of your hands, the thoughts of your mind, the passions and meditations of your heart, he wants it all. There is no room for two masters of the ship that is your soul. Verse 36, he goes on, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What does this mean for us today? Because I fear that we feel so far removed from this type of suffering. From the crucifixions that line the roads in Rome's empire. Right? These feel like harsh words. But I'll tell you this, friends. The world doesn't often mind a Jesus of morality, a teacher, a wise sage, but a Jesus who demands lordship, a Jesus who claims to be the son of God, a Jesus who through his very life and death proclaimed to a world, you are lost without me, dead in your sin and in need of a savior. That's the line in the sand. It's not an easy thing, this life of discipleship, of following Jesus. It's costly, and it is good for us to stop and truly count the cost. Would I give my life for him? For the one who gave me his? Would I risk social suicide to proclaim that Jesus was and is and will forever be who he said he was? Do I truly believe this? So I return to that question, ask you the question of lordship. 
Who has supreme authority, power, and rule in your life? There's a beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis as we close this morning. He says this, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Dear brothers and sisters, if you claim Christ, I can tell you this, the road ahead will not always be easy. In this world you will have troubles, but our Savior promises us, take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. And if there was ever one to entrust my soul to you, It would be Jesus, for he is good and trustworthy. He has shown himself to be faithful, amen? He has pursued me to the ends of the earth. He has lavished his love upon me, and while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. He made a way back to the Father, back to our creator God, who we were made for, the one who formed you and me and calls us by name. He and he alone has the authority to say, I bid you come and die that you might truly live. To answer this question, who do you say I am? He is the Messiah, holy and anointed one, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, whose name is above every name. He is the good shepherd, the lover of your soul, the Lord who stands at the beginning and at the end of all things, and the one who promises I will never leave you nor forsake you. This morning, brothers and sisters, my prayer is this, that at the end of all things, your eyes will meet his eyes, and in that day, he will not speak of shame. He will not be ashamed of you, but his words will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for This text, may my words fall away and may your words remain lodged in our hearts and minds, Father. May we not walk away from this morning without it driving deep down into good soil. Help us to ask the hard questions. Help us to have the courage to ask who is actually Lord of our lives. Are we serving ourselves or is it truly Jesus who tells us who we are? why we are here and what we are called to. He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Thank you for the beauty of this story, for captivating our hearts, for giving us hope in a world that so often feels hopeless. When chaos seems to reign around us, where we know that you are making all things new and you have invited us to be a part of that. We thank you, Father. We pray these things. In your name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to end with a song, and it it may be a new song for some of you. I just ask you, if you don't know it, that you would ponder the words. May they be an encouragement to your heart, and if you do, sing them out. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Because your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Let's sing together.